Here's the pitch. Oliver wants to throw. He's got Lance Carl open. Caught. 15, 10, 5, touchdown. The Buffaloes at four on a 53-yard pass from O.C. Oliver to Lance Carl. Running the option on first down. Hagan has it. He has room. He's got one man to beat. Now he pitches to Flanagan, and he may take it all the way. Flanagan's in for the touchdown. to a new Buff Stampede Radio. Adam Mustertai, your publisher of BuffStampede.com here with fan correspondent Tyler Ziskin. Tyler, we're recording this on Friday morning. The Buffaloes finally set to begin preseason camp. Yeah, it's been a long road, huh? <laughs> Windy. A few uh, speed bumps to say the least, but um, it's nice to be back. I Hopefully it works the way that we all want it to, for sure. Um, they didn't really give themselves a lot of leeway with the buys and given, I mean, you look at what's going on in the NFL right now, there's obviously a lot of moving parts. So hopefully the Pac-12 can find a way to, uh, keep everyone in line. Um, otherwise it could get interesting. (laughs) If I told you right now, so you could get five games in, would you take it? Or do you think there's a chance? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would I would take anything. And I think really the reason for that is it feels like it's not a real season to me. And that, that might come off as negative, but I mean, no one's losing a year of eligibility. Um, it, it just seems like a compromise to give people their entertainment and for the kids to play, which they want to do. You know what I mean? Almost everyone on the team is wanting to play. Otherwise, they wouldn't be. At least that's the, the assumption. So um, it, it feels like kind of it's almost like a practice season. Like I think you, the the staff should probably take the approach of take some risks, try to figure some things out. I mean, obviously there's a, this is a good time, especially with a quarterback situation that's um, unresolved to, to work out all those kinks, because I mean, you're going to have all these guys back next year if they choose to be. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I would be surprised if Nate Lamb and Mustafa Johnson and Katie Nixon are back. I, yeah. I'm going in with the expectation that that's the last, this is the last time you're going to see them in a uniform, even probably right. James Stefano as well. Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. But I mean, it's not, it's, you know, it's a developmental year for the younger guys, which I don't think can hurt Colorado at all because they do have a pretty young team. It's been about, about a month since your wedding. How is uh, married life treating you? Uh, pretty good. I've uh, been going on a few vacations. We just got back from Aspen last night. So, um, still looking for work. So for me, I mean, it's been pretty good. Um, just trying to figure things out there and um, enjoying the process. I mean, nothing's really changed for us. We've been together a long time. We've lived together a long time. So it's it's been fine in that regard. If the folks that listen to this podcast could have heard 
Ryan Konigsberg's speech at your wedding, uh, they, they'd all be proud. <laughs> yes, they would for sure. He definitely, definitely uh, put one out there for the bus, <laughs> which I can appreciate for sure. <laughs> with, with a lot of diehard Nebraska fans uh, there, mm-hmm. no less. So, yeah, right. yeah. For those who don't know, my wife's, uh, well, at least her dad's side of the family are all Nebraska fans. So it's a, it's an in-house rivalry here. Well, let's jump into the Buff Stampede mailbag. This is pretty much going to be exclusively a mailbag show. We got a ton of questions, and I've only got about an hour here before uh, we get our first interview with Carl Drill during camp. Which, uh, again, it's not. It's going to be a little different this year. It's all going to be done virtually. Uh, but man, been been waiting for this day for a long time. So let's jump into the mailbag here. The first question is from Phil's Fro. He asked. Adam, with the rapid testing contract, how is the Pac-12 still the last major conference to start? Even the Mountain West is starting before us. Seems like a failure on Larry Scott. So, Tyler, I've chastised Larry Scott in the Pac-12 over a lot of issues in the past. But you almost have to kind of defend them a little bit here, just given the restrictions that were in place in, in California and Oregon. And they didn't have that partnership with daily testing until September 3rd. And they didn't have the equipment to do that until the end of September. So it would have been hard for them to start much earlier than they did, given in there was even the wildfires going on in, in those two states. And so I do think there, there should have been a little bit more of a rush to get a season started on October 31st. I think they could have done that and they should have done that. But uh, overall, you know, I'm not going to chastise them for this because the environment in the Pac-12 footprint was different than what it was in other parts of the country. Yeah, and I don't – I mean, sure, could we have gotten another game in? Maybe, but does that really change things when you look back at the end of the season? I would argue no, probably. Well, I like the – if they could have played October 31st, at least you have maybe a bye week in there with a little bit more flexibility. Right, sure. If you you want to throw bye weeks into the equation, yes, obviously that makes some sense. I mean, I guess – you know, we all have our different opinions on this, but I feel like the Pac-12 has done a good job erring on the side of caution and trying to come up with a real actual plan. I mean, you could say it's embarrassing, but I would also say having five of your first six games canceled is also embarrassing. And there, you know, Houston has done that. Some some other teams around the country have really struggled to actually get their season underway. Um, to me, it still feels like college football hasn't even really started, even though it's been playing in some areas for five or six weeks now, um, because not everyone's out there. Honestly, the product has been a little bit shaky so far with, you know, limited fall camp and that kind of stuff. Things have just been different. So, yeah, I mean, sure, we started after the Mountain West. I guess my argument would just be it doesn't really matter. I mean, if they do things the right way and the season goes off with seven weeks in a row of no issues, they're going to look smart. So, I mean, we'll have to see how it plays out. You know, playing through the winter of a pandemic when things are expected to get worse, like right now, to me, it's a little bit interesting timing wise, and we'll have to see how it plays out. But if it does work, it works. I mean, we just need to see how it goes. Lean4044 asked thoughts on Keith Miller as a tight end. So, yeah, Keith Miller put out a, a tweet a few days ago talking about whether it's at receiver or tight end, I'll make an impact, something along those lines. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, he's not listed on the pencil depth chart at either position. So I would imagine they're, they're probably going to experiment with him in both spots, I would think. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine with me. I mean, I think there was always a concern. He's a big guy, um, but not the fastest dude you've ever seen on a football field. So I do think he was always kind of viewed as a little bit of a tweener there. Um, I always love when a player is willing to, 
try out different things to see what helps out the team. And maybe he finds that he really likes that position better. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, if he's cool with it and the staff thinks that it helps the team, I'm obviously all for it. Uh, I do think he's a big target, a good red zone target, but I, I would say that coming in his, his overall speed is the number one question. So if he was able to bulk up and play tight end, that makes a lot of sense because he could create some mismatches there. Yeah. And he would be, more of just a big target out of a slot. I don't know. He's not going to be a hand in the ground type of tight end. Uh, I kind of, I kind of envision him potentially developing into what Tyler McCulloch and how they used him his senior year. And that was really effective uh, late in his career. Yeah, definitely. I mean, McCulloch went from being a guy who never really got it going to by the time he was done at CU was definitely a weapon for us. Lean4044 also asked, should the staff make a concerted effort to play as many underclassmen as possible as it is essentially a free playing redshirt year? You already touched a little bit on this. You think they should get the the young guys out there quite a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think you know you have to see how the start of the season goes. I mean, you know, you start two and oh, obviously you're gonna go out there and try to win some games. Um, but if things aren't going your way, yeah, I mean, I think what what does it hurt to get to see what you have? Um you know, it's just kind of like an elongated fall camp with, you know, games that actually matter. Um, in the end, you know, you could say, okay, we'll get these guys out here. And I think you're kind of right. There are some guys who are going to choose to not return. If you start to get those vibes in the middle of the season, yeah, you're probably going to start playing your younger guys if the season isn't going the way you want. So we'll just have to see how it goes. I mean, I think this, how this is all set up, it kind of levels the playing field, you know? So being the under dog this year I think is kind of a fun spot to be in for CU because I think maybe the the gap between the great teams and the poor teams is going to be minimized this year because there just hasn't been enough practice time things are weird kids are deciding not to play etc etc I could see some some crazier upsets this season one area you're going to see young guys play a lot and more so than a normal season would be on special teams because there, there are guys that can you can give them a specific role, keeps them engaged. It allows them to get a feel for getting out there on game day and can kind of help in that regard. Um, in the past, obviously, the last couple of years, you'd have to restrict them to four games if you were going to do that. And this year, you if a guy shows he can be a good special team or you know, especially those linebacker defensive back types, I think that's where you're going to see a lot of them play. And then, yeah, I think Ty goes to youth in a season like this, but I still think at the end of the day, you, you're going to want to put the players out there that are going to give you the best chance to win because, yeah, it, it might not be a traditional season, but you can still gain momentum as a program by winning games this fall, especially For when sure. you, you talk about recruiting and, mm-hmm. and creating a little bit of a buzz going into 2021. So I don't think you just play young guys just to play them. I think they have to you know, they, they have to earn it. Well, yeah, I agree with that 100%. I mean, you're not just going to put guys who are clearly worse out on the field, but if there are situations to get guys you really like experience and playing time, I think you probably find a way to do that if possible. Catnip lover 420 asked, what's your greatest achievement during the pandemic? A keeping content rolling in B banning Ralph and C maintaining your sanity. Well, I don't know if I've maintained my sanity. I was kind of teetering on the edge there until they announced the fall football season. But, uh, yeah, A, they're keeping content rolling, man. When, when you cover a team that hasn't played a game in about 10 months, that's probably the biggest challenge I've had 17 years doing this. Yeah, and I do feel like, it, you know, it's it's hard to say this when we're doing a podcast for the show, but 
the priority for a lot of people was elsewhere, you know, like, it's not just that the team wasn't playing. It's that it kind of got lost in the shuffle. Like even the first few weeks of college football, it didn't really register for me. Like I didn't really miss it yet. Now that CU is coming back, like I'm excited, obviously, but it wasn't there. I wasn't as going as crazy as you, I guess I would say. So for me, I, I have kept my sanity. I've been pretty um, clear throughout this whole thing, which definitely a lot of people haven't. And I get it. You know, it's, Times are weird. It's hard, but you just got to try to be adaptable. But yeah, I mean, content at a time like this is definitely you're you're scratching the bottom of the barrel for sure. We'll call this the R Jack three segment. He had a lot of questions here. <laughs> First up, given how shaky Texas A&M looked against Vanderbilt and how helpless they also looked against Alabama, how do you think CU would have fared against the Aggies? Anything make you think CU could have played A&M tough like Vanderbilt did? What makes you think CU would have been blown out by the Aggies? So I have to admit, I didn't see either of those games. Uh, so did, did you happen to see A&M either? Um, I watched Any the Alabama game. Okay. I watched the Alabama game. And, there, you know, A&M is always overrated. Let's be clear here. That, that happens every single season. So, I mean, I don't think I've said they would have gotten blown out. And I'm not, I don't know if you have either, but I'd be surprised if you had um, I, you know, in a normal season going down there, playing in their stadium with a bunch of fans, it's a little bit of a different experience, right? I mean, I think it's fair to say we probably would have been rightly underdogs in that scenario. Um, I think A&M is certainly more talented than we are as well. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, you know, feel bad for saying that CU is a less talented and probably wouldn't have been favored in the game. Now, is it possible they could have won? Yeah, of course. I mean, all things are possible. There's been crazier upsets in college football. You never know what will happen. But I, I, I do think it's fair to say that A&M would be and should be favored in the matchup. Assuming we be- get back to a normal college football season with fans in the stands, I think the latest we heard is that the A&M game would most likely be played in Denver next year, right? Isn't that the latest? Yeah, we've heard? which, I, you know, on a personal level, since I live four blocks away and I can have a huge party, it's great. You know, like that part of it is awesome. But I do I, – I feel for the fans and, and for Boulder. I mean, I think that's a game that – Ideally, you would like to see played in Boulder in Folsom. I think that's the best way to do it. But, you know, we're in a situation where us and the rest of the country, too, they're they're trying to scratch out as much money as possible because of how this season is playing out. So I understand where Rick George is coming from in that regard. You can get more money out of a bigger stadium. All right. The next question from RJAC3 is, who finishes with the most touchdown receptions, Brady Russell, Daniel Arias, or Maurice Bell? What do you think? Um, I would take Daniel Arias, but I would say that I would don't expect a ton of touchdowns from any of the three. Um, I would say maybe three touchdowns would would win this matchup. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think you have to go there because Arias has played sparingly, and he has the same number of career touchdown catches as Brady Russell does right now, which mm-hmm. is two. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe give me four touchdowns for Arias and then maybe two by the other two guys. Again, that kind of depends on how many – Games see who actually gets in this year. Right, yeah, for sure. But Katie Nixon probably leads the receivers in touchdowns, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess that probably had. I, I would say maybe Dimitri Stanley. I, I like Stanley. I, I think I think they need to use him a little bit more. Um, we'll see how it plays out. Katie is he's he's obviously a deep threat guy, but he's never had him. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong here, but I feel like he hasn't had a ton of touchdowns in his career because in the red zone, his skill set isn't quite as used. 
Um, he, he's definitely a quick twitch guy. So in the in, you know in the middle of the field, he's obviously a lot more effective. But he's definitely not a goal line type of yeah. receiver. Yeah, he had the two touchdown game. Was it against USC last year where they were using him out of the slot finally? Yeah. Which was mm-hmm. was nice to see. All right, the next question here. I noticed on the team's bio, Ashad Clayton does not have a picture with him in a polo like the other team members. Is it safe to assume he is transferring? Tad Boyle's spotless program will be hit with a surprise postseason ban. And then he says anything else that is the worst possible scenario. So a lot of sarcasm in there. Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's how he's, I read it as well. <laughs> he's, he's asking us for some kind of worst possible scenarios. Am I reading that correctly? No, I, th- I think. I think he's just sarcastically saying is because he's not in a polo, are we concerned he's not going to be on the team? <laughs> and I, you know, who knows? The shot Clayton has certainly been an eventful recruitment, let's let's say. And he's from the South, and we've struggled to keep guys here from the South. So you just never know. But so you're, no, so you're, adding, you're adding fuel to this fire, Tyler. Yeah, I mean, I still, I, would I be shocked if he wasn't playing this year? Yes, yes, I would. It's funny, they came out with the pencil depth chart and the shot Clayton wasn't on there. So I had four random people asking me about that on Twitter. There, There's 13 yeah. true freshmen that aren't listed on there. So it's I don't think there's anything yeah. to read into there. And I I don't know enough of the details behind that, but my assumption is that they just haven't been able to work out yet because they got here later. Is that mostly correct? Um, well, I, I think he's got some catching up to do. You've got guys that have yeah. been in the program, you know? Right. So exactly. until. As Hagen says, until you can prove to me that you can pass block, you're not going to be put on the depth chart. So I, until he shows he can do that during camp, he's going to be an underdog, he, d- despite how talented he is as a runner. Yeah. All right. It's next a good, up, good position for it, though. He's he's obviously that that's a strong group. So yeah, we'll be fine either way. I mean, it's a positive thing that an Ashad Clayton comes in and is not on the depth chart. I'd actually look at it as a positive because that means yeah, you've got guys that are talented at that group. Whereas, I mean, we all know I, I love Fontenot, so I mean, it's yeah, yeah I'm I'm, co- I'm good with him if he's the starter. I'll be happy to ride with him any day. What's interesting is Joe Davis was listed as a co-backup with Jaron Mangum, so Joe Davis clearly had uh, an impressive offseason. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he definitely has a role, right? I mean, he's he's a physical big dude. I mean, around the goal line, I think he definitely has a value. All right, the next question here from Jack is – do the results from other conferences mean anything at all about what to expect for Pac-12 play? Should we expect as many upsets as we have seen in Big 12 or a clear gap between good teams and bad teams like we have seen in the SEC? Tyler, I've watched very little college football. I think I'm finally willing to get back into it now that uh, work is picking up and I kind of want to look around and, and watch some college football. So I don't really have a take here. Have you watched enough to, to have a I, I feel? Watched, I haven't watched a ton, but we did discuss this a little bit earlier. I do feel like this season, the, you know, the good teams and the bad teams are going to be closer together. Um, I, I, I just, you know, people aren't as prepared as in years past. Things are weird. People are uncomfortable. A lot of the best teams have had players who are going to get drafted, opt out of the season. Although some of them have decided to come back too, but yeah, I definitely could see the Pac-12 always has some parity. Uh, I think that's hurt them in years past, and I you could see more of that this season as well. Um, it's typically a pretty deep league, and yeah, I could I could see a lot of teams beating up on each other this year for sure. Next question: If the betting line is at one and a half wins, what bet would you make, or maybe have made? Have you made it's any? So hard have you put any action on the buffs this year, Tyler? No, I haven't. And I probably won't. It's just so hard to bet on this year. There's so many variables, outside variables. Are we going to play? Do Does someone get sick? That's important. You know, it, it's it's really hard to 
gauge. I mean, I guess I would say our schedule is definitely pretty favorable. I mean, we will have an opportunity to win more than one and a half games. I'll say that for sure, but it's just hard to guess exactly how things are going to go. I mean, if you put a gun to my head, I would say over. I I think two and four is probably the most likely scenario for this team, but it's just so hard to see. Yeah, I I will put a little action on some games, but I I don't bet for or against you. I just don't think that's very ethical. But uh, the thing that stood out to me about this with these over-unders is it says on there that the team has to play seven games in order for the bet to be valid, which makes me think that most of those bets are not going to be valid. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I would have to agree with that. Yeah, somewhere along the way you're going to have issues. If CU plays seven games, though, I feel pretty confidently they'll win two or three games. So I would definitely take the over if, again, if if I was going to make a bet on it. All right, next up, the question from RJAC3 is, any thoughts on Darian Rakestraw's NFL potential? Uh, it's honestly something I hadn't considered. I liked this question. He, he's definitely improved every single season. I think he still needs to improve this year to get to that point. He definitely doesn't have what I would describe as a typical safety frame, especially for the NFL, um, a little bit leaner than you would like to see. Um, we've had some good safeties in years past. So I would say at this point, the NFL knows about our secondary. So he's going to get a fair shake. Um it's he's going to have to continue to improve, but there's no doubt that he has improved as much as anyone in the program since he's been here for sure. And that improvement's been pretty darn linear. It went from a, him not being able to find a position to getting out there, showing a few flashes, but not being very good on the mental side to taking a big step last year. I mean, a couple really big plays in the Arizona state win had that interception in the Stanford game. If he makes the jump that he made between his sophomore and junior year, to this year, that would be huge. And then the other thing you got to throw in there is the fact that he could come back in 2021 as a senior. And I think he probably should. And that would be another off season of development and another right. season where he can show that he's made even more strides. Yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, it would be, he has one more year where he could really improve his game. And I mean, if he does get drafted this year, my odds would say it would be, he would be a low round pick. Um, so does he still have an opportunity to improve his stock by coming back another year? And I would argue absolutely yes, just like you said. All right. And the last question I believe here from RJAC3 is, would you rather the Buffs have two known reliable quantities at corner like 2017 or the situation they have now with a close competition because every player can be considered a wild card? So maybe would you rather have a corner situation like 2017 when the Buffs had Isaiah Oliver and Nick Fisher and not much else? Versus now, where there are four guys, but no clarity how much better they will be, et cetera. I think uh, in, 20, I think in 2020, you want to have depth <laughs> because you just don't know yeah. injuries and then positive tests can be an issue. Virginia Tech had 21 guys out last week. So I think you, and I don't know if I like this example. Isaiah Oliver's obviously in the NFL, but Nick Fisher was maybe kind of out of place at corner. I would take KJ Trujillo over Nick Fisher right now. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it just, it depends on who the people are, right? I mean, if you have Cheeto and Isaiah Oliver standing out there and those are your only two guys, I think I would run with my odds there and say, okay, yeah, two, two second round NFL picks. You feel pretty good about that. We don't have that on this year's team. At least I don't think so. Um, We do have a little more depth there and you're right. I mean, who knows how things are going to go. It's probably nicer to have depth. You would though, you know, if you have four guys that you, that don't separate, you probably have zero. Same thing as you would say with quarterbacks. So 
you do got to find two guys that you can put out there to make some stops. And I, I think we do have that. I think this cornerback group is actually fairly deep. So I, I like what we've got in this year's class. Mile High Crew also had a number of questions. First off, with games being played on ESPN and Fox this season, which is good for national exposure, what is the future of the Pac-12 network going to look like? Can basketball and a few low-tier football games sustain the network moving forward? Tyler, I think the Pac-12 network, as it's been constructed, is going to suffer a slow death here until that current TV contract ends after the 2023-2024 season. I think the writing's on the wall there. It's it's just it's been a bad structure and situation since since the since the jump really. Yeah, I agree 100. I don't see it surviving. Um, I like some of the talent on the on that network, but um, the way that things were devised, I guess you could say, and you know, the TV agreements that have been put in place with the Pac-12 network just make it unsustainable long term. I don't see any way that it, that unless something changes with how they're you know the viewership across the country, it's not going to work. The next question from Mile High Crew. Do you see the Pac-12 finally giving up on Larry Scott as a commissioner? I hope so. <laughs> I think Larry Scott's smart enough to know that – to see the writing on the wall and knows his days are numbered. And that might have been part of the reason that he paid out $4 million in bonuses, including his own bonus, before they laid off or furloughed 94 staff members. So I think – I don't think that's the action of someone that thinks he's going to get another contract as the commissioner. I mean, yeah, or his arrogance is so beyond the realm of normal that it's truly fascinating, which is possible for him as well, because he's truly something else. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's really no other way to put this. If, if he gets another contract, there's something wrong with this conference. It's not happening. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be absolutely shocked and no, that's not going to happen. So all right, moving along. Number three, how do you feel about early start 10 a.m.? mountain time games well if you're gonna do it this is the year to do it because i can't tailgate <laughs> yeah if i'm being blatantly honest if i have to get up at 9 a.m to watch football during a pandemic it's a lot better than a normal year where i'd be out at the field at 5 a.m freezing my ass off yeah and like you said, this is the year to do it. It's more exposure for the conference. I've always thought those early games are generally pretty boring. You've got some really boring Big Ten games typically in that morning window on ESPN. And so that's mm. one more game in there to throw in there. And uh, from a selfish standpoint, I'd rather be working during the day covering a game than being up till four or five in the morning. But yeah, I do think if you're going to do this going forward, you've got to have it to where a Pac-12 team doesn't host one of those early start times more than once in a season for right, yeah. for the reason of the tailgating crowd. Yeah, I think that and just it's it's a it's a little bit quirky until at least until at least teams get used to it. That's a hard ask, especially if for the traveling team. I think, um, you know, you travel, you come in, all of a sudden you're up getting ready for a game the next morning, super early. That's that's a tough ask. So, I mean, I, I will say the 8:30 games, the PM games. I'm not a huge fan of that either that's way you know no one on the east coast is watching that you can have a night game without it starting at 8 30 p.m especially in the winter so yeah. um, I, I do think moving to earlier game times overall is good for the league and maybe you can leave it up to the teams like if there's a number of pac-12 teams that want to play early and get that extra exposure on tv you know maybe you'll let them and if there's teams that don't want to then you just don't yeah. schedule them in, in that window i think i think it was jimmy lake that said that he was really excited about them 
Is that Kyle, right? Kyle, Kyle, Kyle Whittingham is for sure. Uh, CU said they, they're definitely – Rick George said their hands up to play in that window. Okay, cool. Uh, number four question here from Mile High Crew is, how encouraging is it that Carl Drell and his staff are able to be in the top of many recruits' lists without being able to meet in person and come on visits? I mean – medium i guess i mean no it's not like we're the only school that isn't able to meet face to face and we're still not landing these kids so far so you know coming in second or third place yeah it's good in a lot of aspects of life it's not good in recruiting because you don't have the player so um you know being in someone's final five is you know obviously you want to build right you want to compete with these big names and then eventually you want to get these names i get that i'm not saying carl durrell is already a total failure there there's a long ways to go with that but eventually you do need to land these guys if you want to have better program and number five here it seems like carl durrell and his staff has a priority on building a Polynesian pipeline. How come previous staffs never focused on that aspect of recruiting? Well, to get Polynesian players, you got to have Polynesian coaches. And they tried that with Al Papunu, but it just didn't really pan out last year. Now with Junior Tanavasa on staff, he's gained some traction there. And they do have a couple Polynesian commits from TJ Patu and Zephaniah Mahea. That, that's where it starts. You, you got to have the Polynesian connection in your program to begin with. And then you build off that. Yeah. It's all about family and that culture, right? I mean, they have to feel like they have a group, a unit to connect with once they're on campus. Um, I've yelled about this for years that we needed to be more focused on the Polynesians, uh, get those guys on staff, recruit the players. I mean, this will probably sound wrong, but it is tougher to get some of those guys in school. Um, You know, there's some issues with um, grades and that kind of stuff a little bit more so in that regard. So you have to be, you have to be cognizant of that too. Um, Obviously they, there's a lot of um, how should I put this? There's, there's familiarity, I guess, with a lot of the other programs in the PAC 12. So you're going to have to fight that. I mean, obviously Polynesians are very comfortable with Utah and USC and UCLA. Um, Arizona even has a ton of those guys. So um, Oregon too. So you're going to have to battle with, okay, well, my cousin went here and my friend went here and blah, 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 like, you know, years and years of recruiting from these other Pac-12 schools. But I think Colorado can get in on that too. When they were good, their Polynesian culture was very strong. So I think they definitely need to focus on getting that done. Natty Zaddy asked, with all the bodies added to the tight end room and clear focus there, do you see us running a lot of two-end Two tight end sets in the future. A while back, Brian wrote about Jarrell having a Patriots and Shanahan background, but Chev is definitely more of an air raid style guy. So I'm curious to see where this thing goes. I don't think you're going to see two tight end sets unless they're in short yardage situations. I would be surprised. Uh, there probably won't be a ton. I mean, maybe if they're, they'd have some of those flex tight ends, they might use one in the slot, maybe in a couple of scenarios. It's hard to, hard to say for sure. But yeah, I don't see a, ton of ground and pound, let's say, being implemented. Natty Zaddy also asked, do you think we'll finally see Katie Nixon primarily in the slot this year? Where do you see the others lining up as well? So on that pencil depth charts, Katie Nixon's listed at two receiver positions, which definitely tells you that they plan to use them in both roles. Yeah, 
another thing that I've been arguing about for a long time. He should be in the slot a lot more. I mean, we've thrown more to him on deep balls than anybody else on the team, which is a little bit backwards in my opinion. Um, he is much more useful in my opinion out of the slot, but yeah, he's, he's going to get some run everywhere, I think, which is fine. I mean, you're going to try to get him on mismatches. You know, if they have a tall, lanky corner who doesn't have a whole lot, ton of shiftiness on the outside, he's going to get lined up against those guys quite a bit to try to create some mismatches. So you'll kind of see him all over the field, maybe even in the backfield a little bit too. Yeah, and just looking at the depth chart, obviously Arias is going to be outside. Maurice Bell will be, uh, you know, used outside primarily. And then we'll, we'll see Dimitri Stanley still in the slot. Jalen Jackson still out of the slot a little bit. It will be interesting. Levante Chenault's listed on there in a couple positions too. In the past, Chev has not rotated his receivers a lot. I wonder if that will change more this year. Uh, I mean, in the past, there's been a reason for it at times. You know, when you have a LaVisca Chenault and Tony Brown, you don't want to take them off the field that much. But it doesn't seem like there's as much separating maybe the top receiver from the fifth and sixth receiver this year. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, in terms of just being A, healthy, and B, ready to go in the game, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of value to rotating guys in because you want to be fresh in the fourth quarter. All right, let's move along. Scobuffs 80 asked, I'm not sure I am fully aware of what kind of offense we expect to see when we get on the field against UCLA. Will it be what Chev ran in 18 or closer to what we saw in 19? And CT Buff asked a similar question. He asked, what offense should CU fans expect to see this fall? Obviously, there were strong elements of last year's offense and some air raid influences, but do you foresee a noticeable change from what was run the last two years. I guess my expectation here, Tyler, is that it'll be a mix of what we saw in 18 and 19, probably a little bit more pro style looks, but still you're going to see, you're going to by and large have more of a spread look, I would think. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I, I do think given we feel fairly confident about our O-line and our running backs and far less so about what the quarterback position is going to look like. It wouldn't surprise me to see us start the year off a little more run heavy than we're used to, um, to try to get the quarterback comfortable, you know, probably some shorter throws, probably some play action, definitely try to, you know, run the ball a little bit more than maybe we've seen in years past. So I, I, I think that's where we'll probably start off until the quarterback gets comfortable or if the quarterback already looks comfortable, they'll start opening it up a little bit more, I think. Yeah. And Chev did flat out say that he's going to implement more play action than he did in, in 18. So that is one difference that you should ex expect to see from the last time he called plays. Ralphie's running asked, what's your biggest concern going into the season and what's your biggest reason for optimism? Um, Concern, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I don't really have any. I think, again, I kind of am looking at this kind of like a free season that I didn't really expect to get. So I'm just excited to watch them and see how things go. Um, obviously, I guess the concern would be that it all falls apart and everyone gets sick and the season gets canceled midway through. That would that would not be a whole lot of fun. Um, in terms of, you know, the season actually going on, I guess I would just say us not really feeling confident in a quarterback moving forward. That would be frustrating. Yeah, lack of experience at quarterback was the biggest concern I had written down here. And, you know, frankly, we needed to move off the Steven Montez era that we, we kind of I was getting fatigued with that and nothing against him. He was, a, he was a great kid, but it was just the inconsistency. It was like had to had to start moving forward at, at that position. And so uh, that's a concern, though, just because we haven't seen those guys out there. Um, in terms of optimism, it's got for me, it's got to be the depth, experience and talent on the front seven of the defense. 
Um, that's a group that, that should make a big stride, I, I feel like, this year. And then also you, you can kind of couple that with the fact that they're going to be in the same defensive system and they can possibly continue to build off that momentum they gained in those final two home games last year. For sure. I mean, I, you, defensively, you have to feel as good as you can you know, with everything going on about how this defense is going to look this year. I mean, they, they've kind of trended upward the last two seasons, and I think you – should expect that to continue this year. So I am excited to watch and see if we can actually create some pressure and, uh, you know, win the line of scrimmage, which it's been a while since we've been able to do that consistently on defense. I guess if there's a concern on defense, you'd probably look to the depth at safety. You've got two true freshmen that are in backup roles right now, which that, you know, Mel Tucker and his staff did a good job of cultivating depth in some spots, but safety was not one of them. Yeah. It's been an issue. seems like forever (laughs) in this program is finding, enough guys to play safety. And it's obviously one of those positions. There's a lot of, a lot of hitting. So there's usually some injuries there. So hopefully we can get at least a third guy to step up and be reliable there. Scobuffs 80 also asked, what would you consider a good 2020 football season for the buffs this year? Seven games. <laughs> just, just plain. What if they go? zero and seven, come on. You can't I mean, consider that it a would, success. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be a lot of fun, but I mean, I don't, to me, it's again, it's just like free football. Cause it, it didn't really feel like it was going to happen for a long time. I don't think they're going to go and seven. Obviously if they go zero and seven, I'll be pretty pissed, but um, I think just, I'd like to see Carl Durrell, like as a game day coach, a lot of the coaches we've had in the past 10 years have driven me absolutely nuts with their decision-making. Um, I, I don't know if I expect this to happen with him, but it would be a pleasant surprise to, you know, be happy with his, um, decision-making during the course of the game, uh, being aggressive when you need to be that kind of stuff. Um, that, you know, I'll be looking for that. That would be huge moving forward for the season. I think I'd just like to see a lot of the young guys. If we, ha- I hope to see some young talent, especially on defense flash right away. Um, I think Jason Harris would be the first one right away. I mean, if he, if he can show that he could be a world-class pass rusher, that would make me feel a lot better about the future. Like those are the small things that I'm keying on. If they played seven games, I would say even a three and four season, I would consider a success and feel good about, especially if you feel good about the quarterback position going forward. I don't know. I think I'm a little bit more optimistic on this team. You mentioned that there's been parity in the PAC 12 and it might be even more so this year. They, they were able to get in, even though they didn't have spring practices, more work than a lot of PAC 12 programs did this summer. So I don't know. I, I think a, a three and four season is realistic. Yeah, no, I do too. I, I I guess I'm just saying like I'm going into this year with I, I just can't see myself being too disappointed overall just because of how everything shook out. I didn't think this was going to happen until the spring, so it's going to be fun just to get out there and be able to watch some of the games. Missoula Buff asked, how frequently do you anticipate receiving detailed updates from practice from the coaching staff? I'm assuming y'all won't be able to observe it all in person. So, yeah, we got the camp schedule yesterday we're not going to be allowed to go there in person to watch practice or even conduct the interviews in person, but there's 21 different days leading up to November 7th that we're going to be able to talk to Carl Durrell, assistant coaches and or players over zoom. So we'll get lots of updates. They said they're going to send us some B rolls, some photos from practice. So it's not going to be as good as our coverage normally is, but we're going to make the best of it. And Carl Durrell in his media webinars has been pretty forthcoming with information. So if that continues, that'll be good. Cause I know that's what fans want is just a little glimpse into what, you know, each player and position group is doing. Yeah. I mean, it's detailed information. I 
can't really see that happening this year. It's just going to be tough to um, have the coverage that you're used to seeing um, with the way that everything is right now. Um, I do agree. I think Darrell so far has been very accessible. Um, seems like he's going to be fairly friendly with the media. He has that type of personality. He's pretty even keel, low maintenance. Um, we'll have to see, though. I mean, obviously, things change quickly when you're winning or losing. Uh, you, you see a different personality out of guys when they're struggling. So we'll have to see how the season goes, and that typically dict- <laughs> dictates how friendly and available this, the team is. Yeah. D.L. Buff asked, I asked a version of this in a position battle thread, but we'll change it up for the mailbag. Assuming Antonio Alfano can stay on the straight and narrow, do you think he will receive a waiver and be available for the fall season? If so, do you see him breaking into the rotation or not? So I think DL Buff asked this question before I asked Carl Durrell for an update on Alfano on Wednesday. I'll just read off what Carl Durrell said, because this is what we're going off of right now. He said, we are currently working with that case right now. Speaking of Alfano, we do have him reinstated in our program. He did some great work over the summer, getting himself eligible and taking care of business from a school standpoint, had a good summer. He did miss some time in the spring dealing with some medical issues. That is really the hang up right now is getting him cleared medically. We're trying to get a good handle on that. He has not been cleared as of today. He is reinstated as being part of our football program and training, but he has been in a limited fashion just because of the things he is dealing with. I would say it is a process right now, but he is not eligible as of today. So I know what's going on there, but because of HIPAA laws, I'm not touching that. (laughs) Like I don't want to be liable for putting medical information out there. That's not supposed to be, but um, as long as he keeps showing up, I'm assuming Alfano's going to get cleared at some point. I don't know if it's going to happen for this season. Yeah, I, it's based, you know, reading between the lines there, it seems there's a lot of things that need to happen for him to be ready to go for this year. So I'm not really sure I'll be holding my breath on that. Um, but hopefully long-term he can surprise us and get on the field and show something. Aaron Lott 303 asked, Adam, if you had to bet on it, what question will you be asked more the next four weeks? Number one, the quarterback battle, or number two, can Alfano play? I think it will be fairly close, and I'm willing to guess Darrell will get tired of both these questions as well. Again, this might have come through before we got the update on Alfano, so clearly the quarterback battle is going to be asked a lot more now. Uh, I still think they both will be asked a lot more. Really? <laughs> yeah, because people ask, like, people ask about Alfano – right after information has come out like it's like oh that wasn't what i wanted to hear so i'm going to ask again and hopefully i'll get a different answer this time well i'm not going to ask carl drell about alfano every day because even if he's eligible he's not going to be a starter so i'm not saying you're going to yeah yeah i'm saying someone is going to (laughs) (laughs) fair enough pate buff asked difficult question to probably answer at this point in time but what do you see as a ceiling for a Carl Durrell type program in wins per season? He had one really successful season and mostly average seasons at UCLA. However, I just, however, I just think his ceiling is very limited with what we have seen so far in recruiting in his past experience at UCLA. We are probably looking at a six, seven win type program as a ceiling, which considering the last 15 years of CU football would make him coach of the decade for CU. Pretty much exactly what I was just going to say. If he makes a bowl game, count me in. Just give me one, anyone. We'll see if we can go anywhere from there. I mean, I, what's good for him is that, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot to live up to if you're Carl Durrell. Like, you know, 
if if he goes three and nine and four and eight and five and seven like everyone else has been doing, it's hard to say he was any worse than what we've been doing in years past. Um, I, I, you know, his ceiling is probably if Mike McIntyre can win ten games, then so can Carl Durrell. I mean, who who knows? I mean, you just have to get lucky at the right positions um, to make it happen. Sometimes there's just magic in a season. I, I think that realistically, though, he's probably a seven or eight win coach. I mean, that's what you see as being the likely benchmark for what we would be able to do. But again, I mean, if he makes a bowl game a couple of times in the next five years, guess what? Momentum going up, not down. Yeah. The UCLA situation with Carl Durrell is interesting because those writers – say he kind of failed there, but you look at it on paper, they go to a bowl game five straight years. He takes over a program that I think was in pretty bad shape after Bob Toledo left. Weren't there some yeah. issues off the field going on when yeah, he I was mean, the coach there? And, and then and, and, and Pete Carroll is in the heyday at USC right. at the same time. Right, which is why he's considered a failure. Because you uh, the, te- the team across town is winning national titles. And that's that's what you're being compared to. But take a look at what UCLA has done since he left. Nothing. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, Carl Durrell, listen, we, I think we can all, he's not the most exciting personality. He's not, you know, he doesn't have that Mel Tucker, you know, mojo that we had coming in early, but look at how that worked out. I mean, he ended up using all that to fleece us. In, in the end, you know what I mean? Like that personality doesn't mean much if he's just going to screw you 16 months later. So maybe he's what they need. Maybe he, they need someone reliable, down to earth, you know, just go get it. You know, we're not Oregon. We're not going to all of a sudden be the flashiest team in the country scoring 59 points. I don't think that's reasonable for a Colorado program under just about anyone. Um, you know, I have my doubts. There's no doubt I have my doubts, but I'm not going to sit here and say he's a failure before he's even started. We'll just have to see how it plays out. And you could have doubts given the the length of of time that went between Carl Durrell coaching as a head coach in college. But you could also say he was a 40 year old head coach in his first opportunity at UCLA. You're going to learn things as you go about what is he? It's been what 17 years since he was hired there. So obviously he's going to learn a lot as a, as a head coach coming back to, to the role, I would think too. Yeah. And he's slowly worked his way back up to chain in the NFL too. It's not like he, you know, some, some head coach retreads are guys who haven't been in a position of power for a long time, who have been continually going down in their trajectory and then somehow find their way back as a head coach in college In the NFL, he's worked his way slowly back up. I mean, he wasn't a head coaching candidate in the NFL or anything, but he definitely was the right-hand man for a well-respected guy in Miami. Now, one of the big criticisms, and Pat Buff kind of alluded to this, was that folks in UCLA weren't jazzed about his recruiting towards the end of his tenure there. Um, I don't, I'm not going to judge this staff on the 2020 class when you can't have they, – they have yet to host one official or unofficial visitor. I'm just not willing to form any type of firm expectations going forward with recruiting when they just really have been handcuffed. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously there's not not a lot of travel allowed. So I think more more kids are staying close to home than you would see in a typical season, which does not play into Colorado's favor because obviously there are a lot there's a lot more talent in California, Texas, Louisiana, other places around the country than there is in Colorado, and that's where we're based. I mean, we can't have our entire class based on Colorado kids. So I think that's an issue that unfortunately hampers our opportunities this season. 
Elrod asked, am I crazy to think this will be the Buffs' best defense since 2016? Uh, since 2016. Yeah, yeah. I, I think is arguable. It will be nowhere near the 2016 defense, but yeah. Well, the, previous, mean, the previous three teams kind of set the bar low there, right? Yeah, I was just going to say the, the bar is set fairly low there, so I think that's reasonable. Um, I do like some of the talent on this team, especially on the front seven. Um, there's that that's the most formidable defensive line that we've had since that 2016 group. So um, to me, yeah, I think it's reasonable to say that they'll be the best. I've watched a number of those 2016 games as they've rerun on Pac-12 network. And yeah, man, you just look everywhere you look out there, there's an NFL guy running around mm-hmm. on that defense. That, that was a special group. All right. GE Delta 27 asked, which position group do you feel best about from top to bottom? Additionally, what position groups give you cause for concern? I would say probably D-line is the group that I feel the most solid about right now. And running back Um, probably? Yeah, running back back too, for sure. Especially if a shot Clayton can come in and prove to be playable. Um, Those two, you have to feel really comfortable with having talent there. I mean, I think you have, you know, you have a Pac-12 quality starter and a Pac-12 quality backup at all the positions running back and and across the D-line. Safety's got to be the biggest concern for, for depth, right? For sure. And I think quarterback too. I, I like the guys there, but somebody has to prove it, you know. I mean, we've, we've liked plenty of quarterbacks in years past that haven't panned out. So I'm going to need to see someone come out there and prove that they can be a Pac-12 quality starter before I get too comfortable with it. GE Delta 27 also asked, how do you see the offensive staff staff adjusting the game plan for weather this year? My original thought was more running due to unknown November weather in Boulder. However, I do not anticipate unfavorable throwing conditions at Stanford, USC, and Arizona. It's not like the season is ending that much later than a typical season. Yeah, it's starting a little bit later. So it was re- it was really really cold at Utah in their finale last year. So I, th- I think it's just yeah. going to be w- kind of similar to the way it normally is. Yeah, I mean all the away games, the weather should be great, um, and we have a our you know, the first game is a home game. So typically that time of the year, the weather's not terrible in Colorado. So there's really only two or maybe three games where the weather should be an issue. BioBuff asked, the position battle article shows surprisingly good depth at almost every position except quarterback and maybe safety. Why are our FPI and win total numbers so low? Importance at QB, new head coach plus pandemic year and lack of time. There is a lot of uncertainty surrounding this team in this season, but the roster actually looks pretty good. Tyler, how does the FPI work anyways? Do do you know? It works works poorly. I mean, as bad as we've been in the last decade, FBI has been worse on us than we finished in almost every season. You know, as as frustrating as five and seven has been for the program, that's ahead of expectation every single year that I can recall for every metric out there for Vegas. I mean, the CU has covered their win total over for quite a few years in a row now. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the expectations of Colorado are always very low for whatever reason. I'm not going to sit here and argue why. I mean, I, I think what it is really is these national guys focus on the teams that are going to be in the top 25 and then say, oh, Colorado has not finished well in their division every year. They're going to be bad and move on. I mean, yeah, it's why why the metrics are saying we're going to be poor. It's hard to really say. I, I, you know, I, I don't do I think we're the 74th best team in football, which I think is where the FBI has us right now. No, 
I think we're better than that, but I'm not going to sit here and get all upset because I think we're 57th and not 74th. You know what I mean? Like we, we have things to prove. We haven't been going to bowl games. I fully understand that we're not getting the credit that um, other programs are. Yeah. I did find it interesting with the FBI FPI. And again, like we're, we're not giving it much credence here, but they think that CU has a 41.4% chance to beat Arizona state yet. They only give CU an 18.5 chance at Stanford, given that there's going to be no fans in the stands. I, I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the home and away thing is going to be far less. I feel like that's a bigger in college. Having fans is a bigger deal than in any other sport or level of play because there's so many people there. That's the most passionate fans there are of any sports. I mean, college fan, it's just different. Like you go to an NFL game and you go to a college game and the level of passion is just different. It just is even in Denver where Broncos fans are nuts, Uh, but you go to places around the country and it's even more noticeable. So to me, yeah. I mean, I think again, another reason that the playing field should be evened a little bit more, you're going to go to every stadium in the country and have an opportunity. Nice trier asked, have you heard anything more about any interest from Eddie Lee Marburger in flipping to CU? I assume everything is quieter with a quarterback that has already committed elsewhere, but I see that he's following and followed by Drew Carter and Jordan Wolverton. So there seems to be some interest there. I haven't heard any buzz there lately. Uh, Eddie Lee Marburger seems to still be pretty publicly recruiting for UTSA. So I I don't know, but uh, and part of that, too, is, is we got to see, again, what this quarterback group looks like here as we go up through the season, if you need to take a second quarterback or not. Yeah, they don't seem convinced that they want to take a second quarterback to me, but we'll see. Ugly Rat asked, with all the discussion on the board regarding Carl Durrell and his staff recruiting ability, with what you have seen so far, do you think he has the ability to pull in higher rated recruits or with everything that has happened, has that yet to be determined? Davis Buff also asked something similar. He asked, which do you think is a better indicator of Carl Drell and his staff's ability to recruit? Number one, their ability to retain the entire 2020 class and the positive feedback they are getting from blue chip talent in the 2022 class, or number two, their inability to close on the blue chip talent so far for the class of 2021. Pretty long-winded there. Uh, Bottom line is, I think, should you be concerned or is it yet to be determined with Carl Drell and the staff and their recruiting? Yeah. I mean, I think it's yet to be determined. And what I would say based on both of those questions, did you want to know what pulls in big time recruits? Winning, winning games, Yeah, winning games, people overrate the recruiting aspect of this whole thing. If you go nine and three, three years in a row, you're going to pull in some better players than you will. If you go three and nine, three years in a row, it's really that simple. Now, of course, it's the cart and the horse type thing. You need players to go nine and three. So how do you get there? But I mean, he's walking into a pretty good situation talent wise. I think, you know, he would he would be remiss to say that there's not talent in Boulder right now. He's He can find ways to win. So if they're capable of doing that in the next two years, the recruiting will tick up. If they continue to win, recruiting will continue to tick up beyond that. And with the 2020 class, I think most of those guys genuinely wanted to come to see you still there. Now they had to get on the phone and a couple of those guys, Jason Harris, you had to kind of sell him on things, but by and large, uh, you know, Chev had to do a lot of legwork in the, as the interim coach, but uh, it's not like they had to beg those guys to stick with their commitment. Yeah. And I'm not going to credit Mel Tucker for this, but 
it is always good when you recruit, you know, they're recruiting kids to a school, not a coach. I, I think that's important. And that's part of what happened here is that they wanted to come play for Colorado, not Mel Tucker. So, yeah. you know, obviously they wanted to do both. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend otherwise. They thought they were walking into a different situation and they ended up getting, but you know, it, it, a, that's a, the, the, um, character of that group is obviously highlighted here. I mean, it, not every class around the country would have stuck around like that. So there's a high character kids in this class. And with 2022 early recruiting, I've been impressed with the organization and how you know, active they've been graphics wise, getting out there being, again, we've seen this happen a lot with CU, but getting out there and offering early on and then other programs follow suit. Uh, so that's been encouraging, but you kind of alluded to this earlier. Finishing second for a recruit doesn't mean anything at the end of the day for you. So they're going to – the Eric Olson-type battles that they won, that's what you're going to need to see more of going forward. Absolutely. All right, Tyler. Well, I am about to jump on a Zoom call here and and actually start preseason camp coverage. I'm pretty excited for that. Uh, Happy for you, man. Yeah. What's what's, – so you're – you're not obviously as excited as you normally would be with the tailgating situation, but uh, are you starting to feel it a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely coming around. Um, seeing the other major conferences around the country, there's finally been some games between teams that are both not terrible. <laughs> so, so that always jumps up a little bit. Um, just in general, I mean, my focus has been more on the NFL than it's ever been because for the first time in my life, my team doesn't suck. So Uh, we'll see if that continues, but I'll take it for now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's coming around for sure. I mean, I I definitely still have my concerns about how easily this will all work out. Um, you know, things are getting more difficult in the NFL, not less difficult, which timing wise, you know, is not a whole lot of fun for what we're trying to accomplish here. But yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to keep an open mind and stay positive with it. Cause I mean, I, I honestly, See, at this point, my, my mindset is still, like I said before, any, anything is better than what I expected. So, All right. Well, in a couple of weeks, hopefully we'll have a better picture in terms of the quarterback battle and maybe some other depth chart battles, and, and maybe we can catch up again then. Cool. Sounds good. Great to talk to you. Good to see you and talk to you, Tyler. And thanks to all of you for tuning in.